Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Rector's Forum, today Associate Rector's Forum. We are beginning a new series today because it is the first Sunday in Advent. Advent, of course, is a four-week season. So our series is going to be called Connecting in Advent. This allows us to cover a lot of different themes. Today, I'm going to talk about connecting to hope. Next week, Victor Austin will be here, and he's going to speak on connecting to friendship in Advent. So there will be a variety of different topics on different speakers. But today, we're going to lay some groundwork for the Advent sermon. No, the Advent sermon laid the groundwork for the class. (laughs) We're going to build on Clint's sermon and talk about connecting to hope. Hope is a central theme of the Advent season. You see it all over the place, not only at church, but also on Christmas cards or store marquees or on those big light things that people put in their front yards. I think because it only has four letters, that one's more like interesting than Emmanuel or something like that. So we talk a lot about hope during Advent, during what we secularly call the holiday season, which apparently starts about October 1st these days, except a lot of people tend to feel hopeless. Some of this is the weather. Some of this is stress from family dysfunction. (laughs) But the American Psychological Association has did a study a few years ago that found that almost 40% of people say their stress level goes up during the holidays. And that 64% of people who have an existing mental health condition like anxiety or depression say that the holiday season makes it worse. So we talk a lot about hope, But most people are not particularly hopeful during the holidays, as exhibited by the fact that I was able to find this image of this poor man drinking by himself in front of his lighted Christmas tree. The fact that this is an image that exists says that I am not alone in my assessment that a lot of people feel hopeless or despair during the holidays. There are several reasons for this. Part of it, like I said, is the weather. Maybe it's your family. But there also, I think, is the pressure. The pressure to live up to the greeting cards and the yard signs and everything that's always talking about hope. For example, the Costco Christmas display, which, like I said, I think I saw the first week in October this year. You need all of this stuff or your holidays will be terrible, is the message. This is Garrison Street, which is just a few blocks from the church I attended in San Diego. Um, and it's awesome. I love it. I love going to the Garrison Street Christmas, Christmas display. All the houses in the neighborhood do this. Um, and it's great. It's beautiful, but it's a lot. Everything in the Christmas season is up all the time. It's, it's the parties and the hope and the joy and the expectation and there's all of this pressure and lights and sugar and it's a lot. 
Does anyone else feel this way, or am I just like a Grinch? Do I? Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you for the amen. I was like, maybe I'm the only person who feels this pressure. Oh, here's another good one. This is the ultimate Christmas bucket list. I found this on Pinterest. These are all the things you need to do before Christmas. Make a gingerbread house. Go tobogganing. Well, maybe not. Go outdoor ice skating. Make hot chocolate with marshmallows. Write and mail a letter to Santa. Watch Christmas movies. These are 40 things. Get a Christmas manicure. What does that even mean? (sighs) Whatever. Send out Christmas cards. All of these things that you have to do. It's your Christmas bucket list. Otherwise, you haven't celebrated the season. But see, we're Episcopalians, and so our spiritual gift is smugness. And so we say we know better. We don't buy into this Christmas bucket list thing. We know all about Advent, and here's how you know we have blue or purple napkins for our cocktail parties. (laughs) But then... If you look, even our Advent messaging ends up sounding like sort of the secular holiday season messaging with a sort of religious gloss. Here's just one image that I found when I just searched for Advent wreath. Advent, the season of hope and expectation. And these Advent candles on the Advent wreath have been given names, hope, peace, joy, love. Some will say faith, hope, joy, love. Um, they'll, they're, people love to ascribe these terms to these Advent candles. When I was in Sunday school, I was taught that the pink candle was for love, and it was faith, hope, love. I can't remember, joy or peace or something. This is a relatively new innovation. This is a 20th, 21st century innovation. But the thing is, if you ask people, you say, okay, we're not doing the whole secular Christmas thing. Keep your Christmas decorations, Costco. What we're looking for is Advent. What will people say? What is our hope in Advent? The Christ child. The birth of Jesus. This is what we're hoping for. This is what we're looking for. And so, this is what I was taught growing up. Advent is preparation for Christmas. Who here has heard that? That Advent is the season when we prepare for Christmas. So you see how this all connects. Because how are you supposed to prepare for Christmas? Do all of the things on the bucket list. Get all of the lights up. Buy all of the things at Costco. It's, it's just part of your Christmas preparation. Oh, and then while you're at it, you have to do something your secular friends don't have to do, which is also read your devotion and prepare your heart to welcome the Christ child. So there's all this pressure, even in a liturgical community, to get ready to like, I have to be in the right space and my house needs to look good and, and I have to like read that book that Father Clint is pushing on me and I can't, I can go to Christmas parties but I can't get too excited because I'm an Episcopalian and so I know that Christmas starts on December 25th. And so people feel hopeless. So the question is, are we even hoping for the right thing. If we take on this sort of cultural narrative, 
Or even this narrative, hope and expectation, which is not totally wrong. We'll see why. What is it we're actually hoping for? So for me, my whole attitude toward Advent and even toward Christmas changed when I learned that there is another emphasis in Advent, an older emphasis that put everything in perspective, which is this. Advent is connected to Christmas. It's true. It's not accidental that it's the four weeks leading up to Christmas. But it is not primarily preparation for Christmas. This is not the main thrust of Advent. And more importantly, Advent is not a transitional season. It's not like, well, we have Pentecost, and then we have ordinary time, and we all go on summer vacation, and then we have, you know, all saints, and then we start getting ready for the next real season. Advent is not the appetizer. Advent is a meal in and of itself. It is not something we get through to get to Christmas, which is like the real thing we're hoping for. Advent has its own hope. It's not we're hoping Christmas comes. It's going to. Don't worry. Even if you don't put that thing in your yard, it'll be here. So a little bit of history... The having a fast season, a season where people focus on, on kind of cooling things down. This is what I always say. We have Advent and Lent to kind of like cool things down. On reflection, on spiritual discipline is an ancient tradition. There is a sermon from Leo the Great in the 4th century that talks about a December fast and does not mention Christmas at all. It is instead opposite the spring fast, which is Lent. In the 7th century, this fast did become connected to Christmas. Christmas, of course, is a a major feast. We all know this from the holiday weight gain. So there was a fast period before they were connected. The attitude was primarily penitential. Self-examination, reflection upon your sins, confession, repent and return to the Lord. The same thing we talk about in Lent, it was just the little Lent in December, when you're all sad anyway. (laughs) In the Reformation, there was a shift that actually returned to an earlier emphasis, the earlier emphasis of that fourth century fast, of what the ancient church thought about in December. So the question in Advent, what are we hoping for? It's not the birth of the Christ child. It's the return of Christ to reign in glory. This is the ancient thrust of Advent that had gotten lost and was recovered in the Reformation. A shift from penitence, 
confessing our sins, repenting for our sins, to what we call eschatology. Concern, thinking about the, the, the consummation of the world in Christ, the return of Christ to reign in glory, the end of the world, but in a good way. So this is why I say those Advent candles, traditionally the four themes of Advent, this is going to freak people out, but stick with me. The four themes of Advent are not peace, hope, love, joy. That's modern nonsense. The traditional four themes of Advent, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. I am Mother Barbara of the minor key. (laughs) It used to be traditional, especially at the Reformation, to preach on those topics for the four Sundays in Advent. I tried to get Clint on this train this year. It didn't work, but... There's always next year, unless Jesus comes back before then. Or as I prefer to say it, death, judgment, cleansing, consummation. We can talk more about that later. The hope of Advent is the hope that Christ will return to judge the world. But Mother Barbara, I thought we were going to be hopeful, not scared. You're right, we are, and we're going to talk about why. But first, Advent is the season of what some people call the second coming. And this is actually essential if we're going to tell the gospel story correctly. If we're going to give a full picture of the gospel, which we do through our church year. In Christmas, we talk about the mystery of the incarnation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is Christmas. In Epiphany, we remember that Christ is the Savior not just of Israel, but of the Gentiles, which is to say of the whole world. That Christ comes out of Israel, but is manifest to the entire world. So there's a missionary thrust in, in Epiphany. In Lent, All the way through Easter, of course, this is the obvious easy one, we remember the Paschal mystery. That Christ was not just born and manifests, but suffers and dies and rises again for the life of the world. Pentecost and all saints, there's a spring one and a fall one, we remember the coming of the Holy Spirit, which dra- I have to put this coffee down. I'm getting too excited. The coming of the Holy Spirit, which draws the whole the, the body of believers into not just individuals, but to the church. You see, there's a missionary thrust here too. The coming of the Holy Spirit, the communion of saints, Christ's body here on earth, once in the spring and again in the fall. We remember this. And in between, we have what they call in godly play, the long green growing time. This is what we've just finished, where we remember that Christ Christ wasn't just born and he didn't just die. He actually had a whole life in between. And so we return to Christ's teachings. This is why for the past like 12 weeks, we've been reading parables and sayings of Christ. And in Advent... We remember the promise of Christ to return. 
to judge the world and to establish the reign of God. If we leave one of these things out, we're actually not telling the full story of the gospel. Clint is right when he said in his sermon this morning that the lectionary likes to cut out all the parts about judgment, and that's mostly true. Um, Christ spends a lot of time talking about his return. The disciples are much more concerned with Christ establishing God's kingdom. See, they don't have this They're disciples. They have Christ with them right now. They don't have this like, well, Jesus is going to die for my sins and then rise again. If you're in Tuesday Bible study, you know this. The disciples are not getting it. (laughs) But they are very interested in Christ establishing God's kingdom. In this way, Advent connects us deeply to the Old Testament. Because Old Testament prophecy is all about God's kingdom coming, all about God establishing his reign. Israel, oppressed by the nations, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians and eventually the Romans, poor Israel is always getting getting punished by the nations, and they cry out to God for salvation. And God promises I will gather you from the four corners of the earth, and you will be my people, and I will be your God, and my kingdom will be established forever. So this hope we have of Christ's return, that Christ will come to reign in glory, is deeply connected to the promises of God made in the very beginning. The promises made to Israel, his chosen people. And of course, in the New Testament, we know that that promise is opened up to Gentiles too. Epiphany. To the whole world, God promises to come to establish his kingdom. And so in this way, Advent calls us to look beyond history. We do look backwards. We remember, specifically, we remember God's promise to Israel. We remember Jesus's promise to his disciples about that day or hour no one knows. But we also look forward to the time when history ends. But of course, what do we mean by judgment? by last judgment. First of all, as Clint said this morning, this is not about the rapture. I'm a cradle Episcopalian, so I was an adult before I learned about the rapture. Seriously. I had not heard this word until I was in college. And I was like, wait, you what? (laughs) That's crazy. Um, It is crazy. But it's not about... Like, God coming through and picking which people go to heaven and which people don't. It's not scriptural. But we can't get out of judgment. See, this is the mistake people make. Christians are always overcorrecting. On the one end, we have people who are like, I had friends in seminary and in college who were terrified of the rapture. They were always really worried that they would be 
left behind, that they would be the ones who were not chosen. And it, like, occupied their thoughts. And I saw a bumper sticker once at my Nazarene college that said, if this car is empty, the driver has been raptured. And I was like, that's a lot of confidence. (laughs) You feel really secure in your salvation. So we spend a lot of time, like, certain, certain, for certain people, this is a preoccupation. How do I know that I'm going to be one of the ones who's saved? Talk to my bumper sticker friend. Maybe you'll find out. But then on the other end of the spectrum, we have churches that never talk about Christ's judgment at all. The gospel sort of starts and stops with, like, well, just love your neighbor, and I guess if you do that, you're good. Like, there's no, there's no kind of, of, it just ignores an entire chunk of scripture that Christ has not just suggested he'll come back to judge the living and the dead. Like, we say it every week in the creed, and still no one believes it. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. So the last judgment is not about the rapture, and it is going to happen. The second point, this is so essential. I should have written a whole slide that said this. Judgment is not the same thing as condemnation. This is where when people, like Clint said, people love to cite the judge not lest ye be judged, always out of context. They use it to mean well, don't, don't pass judgment, don't condemn other people, don't cut them off. It's a good idea, mostly. It's not what judgment means, though. Judgment is not the same as condemnation. And so this, this is what we mean by the last judgment. This is my favorite example. Abraham Lincoln, I read a biography of Abraham Lincoln last year. And Abraham Lincoln, when he was a young lawyer, was a traveling barrister. It was the frontier. There were not very many towns. There certainly were not very many lawyers, because you had to be literate, among other things. And so traveling barristers and traveling judges would go around town to town adjudicating disputes. Because here's what happens. You live out in the frontier. There's no, like, I mean, it's literally the Wild West, right? (laughs) You maybe have a mayor, you maybe have a sheriff, but it's mostly just, just farmers and hunters and trappers and frontiersmen. So what happens if you wake up one day and your cow is dead prematurely or stolen or your fence is knocked down or your neighbor shoots a deer on your property? Now you have a dispute. And so, because it's the Wild West, like, you can't call the county authorities. You go over and confront him. He says, I didn't do it. You say, well, I'm going to get even with you, and you knock down his barn. Now you have a bigger problem. So he kills your chickens. So all of a sudden, you have full-on Hatfields and McCoys, where you have full-on people feuding together because there has been no one to judge between them. And somehow, everyone has been left to their own worst devices. If you've ever watched children argue, 
or the TV show Judge Judy, (laughs) you know that this is a deep part of a fallen human nature, that we will let these disputes burble up and they get worse and worse and worse until all of a sudden what has happened? The relationship has broken down. Your neighbor is no longer someone you depend on or look to help or invite to dinner. They're the person you complain about to your other neighbors, and your relationship is broken. So remember, we're in the Wild West. What do you do? What do you hope for? That the judge will come. The judge will show up, and you can say, We have this problem. I can't talk to him. He won't talk to me. What are we going to do about this? And the judge will hear both sides and will adjudicate between them so that the relationship can be restored. So that these people who were separated can be brought together. This is obviously a metaphor, not a legal, like, don't talk about this in your law school practices, because it's, you know, we're still fallen. But the hope is that this judge will be able to bring these people back together. Some people may have to pay. Actually, probably both people will. But the relationship will be restored. So what we mean by last judgment, the first thing is that Christ will return to repair our broken relationships, to bring us back together the way God intended, to judge between Cain and Abel and and unite them again so that we are in relationship. And the next thing, that's the first kind of emphasis on judgment. The second And this, again, gets back to our Old Testament roots. Is that God will pronounce his judgment on unrighteousness. Don't panic. We all know we're unrighteous. But we also know that this world is not the world God intended. Like Father Clint said in his sermon this morning, God did not intend Addiction and loss and cancer and, you know, these, these horrible, um, like, tramplings in South Korea and, and the bridges breaking down and, and this, this death, the, the shooting, the fear, the war. This is not the world God wanted. Those are the things that God is coming to judge. That Christ will return to judge the forces of darkness, of evil, that corrupt and destroy God's creatures. If you're in Tuesday Bible study, you've heard me say this before, but Christ does not come to neutral territory. It's not just us and God. There are are these other darker things at work who will be judged by Christ. So he comes to liberate his people. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. 
We who are captive to the powers of sin and death, who live in this world that we know is not the world God intended, who, because we're not stupid, we remember these things, and that's one of the reasons that Christmas, the secular Christmas holiday, can seem so hopeless. Because whose life actually looks like those lights in that greeting card? Even the best of us live in a world that has this darkness in it. And so we wait. Wait for the judge to come and pronounce his judgment on unrighteousness. So, Advent begins in the dark. If you were paying attention to our lectionary readings, you'll notice that from the Feast of All Saints through the end of the year, the, the gospel readings, and the epistles for that matter, take a little bit of a darker tone, a darker turn. Last week we read about the crucifixion on the Feast of Christ the King. It doesn't get much darker than that. This year we hear one will be taken and one will be left. In not this year, I think it was last year, we hear the parable. This is um, William Blake. I hate Blake's poetry, but I love his woodcuts. <laughs> um, we, this is William Blake's drawing of the wise and the foolish virgins. This we read every three years in Advent. We heard a reference to it in our song this morning. Um, Make sure your lamps are burning. Replenish them with oil. There's this, this, these sort of darker tones up here in the top of Blake's woodcut. Do you see? It's kind of hard to miss. It looks like clouds. But it's the angel blowing his trumpet. Proclaiming the return of the bridegroom, which is what this story is about. It's actually not about shopping. When I was a kid, I thought it was a story about, like making sure you had enough things. I was incorrect. And so the stories we hear about these wise and foolish virgins left out in the cold, we hear one will be taken and one will be left. And we hear this for about four weeks before we even get to Joseph. <laughs> or Mary saying, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. Because we're not, the main emphasis is not preparing for Christmas. It's the expectation of the return of God. Advent begins in the dark. This is one of, you've probably heard me say this before, tradition is the solution to a problem we've forgotten we have. It became trendy a few years ago for churches to have these um, special services that they called Blue Christmas, where they would invite people who felt like that guy with the bottle, who felt down at the holidays, and they would, would you know, kind of hold space for people who had lost someone or who were struggling or for, who were alone on Christmas, for whom Christmas was a, a hard season. It's a good idea pastorally. We already have that. It's called Advent. <laughs> we don't need a special service because in Advent we remember that this world is not the world God intended. 
We hear these darkly urgent stories. We hear the promise of judgment. And then we say, and that is good news. This is the light that shines in the darkness that the darkness cannot overcome. That no matter how dark the world gets, it cannot extinguish the light of the promise of the return of Christ to reign in glory. That the world will be set right. The judge will come to set the world right. And so Christians, in a sense, live in Advent all the time. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We know because we know this. Oh, my slides are slower here. There we go. We know this whole story. We know that Christ has already come. This is one of the reasons we don't need to prepare for him to arrive as the baby. He's not going to. (laughs) He already did. We know that Christ has come, has been born, has taught, has suffered, has died, has risen. We know this is true. We remember this story. We hold on to this hope. And we look ahead for the victory of God. For Christ to return and restore all things to the way God intended them. This is a rich vision, not just of of the cosmos, but of the gospel. And you see how it is radically countercultural. This is how, see, we don't have to, like Clint said, we don't have to be culture warriors. We don't have to, like, go around lecturing people about how their inflatable snowman is, you know, dumb and not the true meaning of Advent. Or that you really need to be using purple napkins because it's not Christmas yet. Because we actually have a hope that transcends all of that. That looks ahead all the way to the end of time. And so, I encourage you, when you think about hope, to remember, here's the mistake we make, even in the church. We talk about hope as though it's the same thing as optimism. As though it is trying to convince yourself that everything's going to be okay. That you really will get your way. That things really will get better in your life. That if you think positive, you can, you know, manifest your own good vibes or whatever people talk about. It, hope becomes something that we do. Do you see how when people talk about like, oh, Advent, the season of hope, what do you do if you don't feel hopeful? Can you hope and not feel hopeful? That's the question. Because Advent is not about our preparation. This is the mistake, I think, Mother Barbara opinion time, that I think we make when we talk about Advent as the season of preparation. It becomes something that we have to do. It becomes something, another thing on our Christmas bucket list. Prepare your heart 
for the Christ child, it may be worth preparing for Christ's return. I'm not saying, like I said, it's not totally wrong. Do some self-reflection. It's good for you. (laughs) Have a spiritual discipline. But don't tie it to your hope. Don't think that if you don't cross all the things off your to-do list, Christ is not going to show up. That if you don't get in the right headspace for Christmas, the whole thing has been wasted. Advent is about God's power, not our preparation. The action comes from him, not from us. Because what we're hoping for is nothing more or less than the power of God to remake the world, to bind up that which is broken, to heal the brokenhearted, to restore those broken relationships, to set things right, yes, by his judgment, his judgment against all unrighteousness. So instead, I encourage you, if you want to reclaim an Advent hope, think less about preparation, the things that you have to do in order to get ready for Christmas, in order to get ready for God. He's coming whether you're ready or not. (laughs) And instead, think of it as a season not of preparation, but of watching and waiting. Stay awake, therefore, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. Watching and waiting is just a different word for hope. It is watching, expecting God to break in, even here and now, as a sign of the resurrection as we wait for his return in the last days. Expect God to show up this Advent. That is our Advent hope. Not that everything is going to get fixed all at once. Not that we can convince ourselves that we've really prepared. This year, we really prepared for Christmas. I got my shopping all done. (laughs) My Christmas cards are sent. That's preparation. Advent is expectation. Expecting God to show up, even in the middle of darkness. We have five minutes if anyone has any questions, but that's all I have. I can also just stand here and drink this coffee. Yeah, so the, you're exactly right, Doreen. Jesus does say one will be taken and one will be left. He doesn't really explain what he means by that. The idea that there will be this one particular moment where, um, you know, he says elsewhere, like, the harvest is ripe, and the, the workers have gone out. The Lord's angels will go out with their sickles to cut down the harvest. These are all Old Testament images, which is the first thing that's important to remember, is that the hope of Israel is that the righteous will be gathered 
into the land God has prepared for them. And, and in certain parts of the Old Testament, the unrighteous will be cast aside. So these are scriptural images. In a lot of ancient prophecy, it's all the Gentiles that are cast aside. Israel is saved. That changes in the New Testament. But this idea that there's this like one particular moment, and specifically that we can kind of predict when the faithful will be caught up and usually like go to heaven and everyone else will be cast aside, this is not something like this called the rapture is not a scriptural image. It has its origins um, actually in a footnote in a certain study Bible in the mid-1800s. But So I think the, the emphasis I always encourage people to, to think about is that Christ is the one who is judging, not us. And I loved Clint's interpretation this morning, which is the reason that Jesus is talking about Noah is that it actually is those who are left behind passing through the waters through the floods, who, who have the greater hope, that they are held in the promise of baptism. So the, the image we definitely need to wrestle with, like I said, Jesus doesn't really explain um, what he's talking about. One will be taken and one will be left. That the righteous will be gathered in. Um, the other...